If you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 18 again, and we will begin in verse 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. And in our text today, Christ's kingdom is again in view. You remember over the last few weeks that um, the kingdom has been talked about a number of different times, a number of different ways. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, whenever we met, Jesus taught us that we should pray and how we should pray until the kingdom comes. You remember he told a parable about a persistent widow and an unrighteous judge, and, or an unjust judge, and uh, the point of that was that we should pray persistently. Then he told a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee who both went up to the temple to pray, and the point of that parable was, was that we need to pray humbly. You remember the tax collector was, uh, was, was uh, racked with guilt and shame over his sin, and the, the Pharisee was very proud and haughty. And so the point of that was we need to pray humbly. Then uh, last week we looked at this and saw that parents were bringing little ones to Jesus so he could pray over them and bless them. And Jesus used that opportunity to tell us that children symbolize the type of people that enter the kingdom of God. And he said, in fact, if you don't receive the kingdom as a child or like a child, that you will not enter it at all. And, and uh, of course, there's a lot that goes into the, the, the picture of a child um, being, being the type of person that will enter the kingdom. But you remember part of it recognizes uh, one's limitations. There are certain things one cannot do. Um, and then and seeking the help from one who can and then trusting that one. And, and of course, that, that talks about how uh, we as, as human beings cannot make ourselves right with God. And we need to seek out one who can make us right with God. And that's Jesus Christ. And then we need to trust him. And so today we're going to see somebody who had the kingdom brought to them. They were close to the kingdom, they stood at the door, and yet they turned away. They walked away from the kingdom. It's, the, the par- it's not a parable, it's the, the account of the rich young ruler. And the, the point of this account and the point of this sermon is that we should not let wealth or anything else hinder us from entering the kingdom of God. So if you found Luke 18 and are able to, I'd like you to stand in honor of God's word. We'll pick up in verse 18 And read down to verse 30. It says, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, He said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. (coughs) Excuse me. I think you may be seated. make it through without having a coffin fit. <clears throat> the first thing I want you to see today in our text is the vital question. The vital question, if, if you'll notice what he says in, in verse 18, the ruler came to him and said, good teacher, what 
shall I do to inherit eternal life? Listen, that is the vital question. I'm not saying it's a vital question. I'm saying it is the vital question that all of us need to ask and we need to have answered. Because it's imperative that you know how to enter eternal life, how to enter the kingdom of God, how to be saved. Because your, your eternal destiny literally is determined by its answer. Now the, this man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And before we move on to the rest of the text, I just want to ask you, have you ever asked that question and had it answered scripturally? What have you done to enter eternal life? What have you done to gain eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God? What have you done to be saved? If you're counting on works, if you're counting on things of the law, if you're counting on, on just uh, living a good life, you're putting your faith in the wrong thing. Because the, the, the only way to be saved and the way that you <clears throat> get eternal life and get into the kingdom is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to be made right with God. The, the, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Not work, not, not do meritorious things, but rather trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's the vital question that's being asked of Jesus. Next, I want you to see a probing answer. A probing answer. Verse 19, Jesus puts the brakes on. It's like, it's like he said, now hold up before we get into answering your question. You need to think about what you're saying to me. Because this man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God alone. Now, as I consider this passage, I think there's a common theme that runs throughout this, and that is the question of what is good? What classifies one as being good? Because this man came to Jesus and called him good, and Jesus said there's only one who's good, and that's God. And, and so this man thinks he's good, but in comparison to God, none of us are good. And so... So that is a major theme that runs through this. But as you look at this, maybe, <coughs> maybe something that, that stood out to you was this question that Jesus asked, why do you call me good? And maybe you read that and, and you had a, a thought that comes to your mind. Jesus, it seems like, you may have thought, Jesus may be saying that he is not good. Because sometimes when we read this and when, when other people read this, we may put the emphasis on the wrong word. Because if, if we read it, hearing it this way, why do you call me good? There's only one good who is good, and that's God. That seems to imply that Jesus is distancing himself from God, from being God, and from being good. But the emphasis should not be on, why do you, why do you call me good? The, question, the, the emphasis is, why do you call me good? See, he's, he's not saying, I'm not good because I'm not God. Rather, he's saying, you need to consider the, the, the weight of your words. Because there's only one who is good, and that's God. And if there's only one who is good, and that's God, and I'm good, that means that by necessity, I am God. I'm divine. And so he's, he's challenging this man, are you really ready to confess me for who I am? Are you really ready to recognize that I am God? <clears throat> so, he asked this question, but, but you notice... He doesn't even wait for an answer. He just puts the question to the man, and then he moves on. And, and he starts talking in verse 20 about the commandments. About the commandments. Now, that may seem kind of weird. Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we might expect Jesus to be like, believe on me. I'm right here in front of you. I who am speaking to you am he. I am the Messiah. Just like he said to the woman at the well. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he points the man back to the law. 
And that may seem kind of weird to us because the Bible tells us unequivocally, without stutter and without stammer, no one, no flesh, will be justified by works of the law. No person is going to be made right with God by doing good and right acts. <clears throat> so why is he doing this? The law, the Bible says, serves as a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. And what happens is when we look at the law, it's like looking in a mirror. Have you ever looked in the mirror and you didn't realize how bad you looked? And all of a sudden you looked at yourself and you're like, whew, I've been looking like that all day. I mean, I got, I got stuff in my teeth, I got dirt on my face, my hair's all a mess, whatever it is. The law serves like a, a mirror. And when we look at it, we see the condition of our heart. We see how dirty we are. And that's the way Jesus is using it here. This man thinks he's good. He's been keeping the law. He's been doing these good works. And so Jesus is going to say, okay, let's just use the law. And let that serve as a mirror to show you that you're not as good as what you think. Now, Matthew's recording of this. He includes a statement that Jesus said that Luke omits. And in Matthew 19, 17... Uh, it says in part, there is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into, into life, keep the commandments. Keep the law. Now again, why is he saying that? Because the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, and Galatians 2.16 and Galatians 3.10, that no flesh, no person, no man or woman or child is justified by works of the law. So then why does Jesus say, if you want to enter into life, keep the law? Well, God gave us rules. He gave us the law of God to govern our lives. He, he, he gave us these things to, to, to serve as guardrails, you might say, on our behavior. And if we do the things of the law, it pleases God because the law is based on the character of God. And so the Bible says, uh, and the law says, don't lie, don't bear false witness. We need to be truth because God is truth. Okay, these, all these laws are based on the character of God. And when we break the law of God, and each of us does, that is called sin. If we break the law of God, that's called sin. You've broken the law of God, and so have I. And if there's no violation of the law, there is no sin. No sin means no need of a Savior. <coughs> so Jesus says, you want to you have eternal life? You want to inherit life? Keep the law. You keep the law, you don't need a Savior. You've got it. But Paul labors in Galatians 3.10 by, by saying, he says, for, for as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So this man thought, I'm good. I've kept my nose clean. I've lived right. These Ten Commandments, I've been, I've been doing those since I was a young person. I, I, I'm doing a good job. I've lived an upstanding life. But listen, God does not grade on, grade on a curve. True goodness does not consist of keeping the law 51% of the time. True goodness does not consist in keeping the law 99.9% .9 of the time. It's a 100% or nothing scenario. That's why Paul said that trying to get to heaven by doing good works, it, it, you're, you're going to end up a curse. You're going to end up condemned. You're going to end up going to hell. Why? Because nobody abides by all the law. No one keeps all the law perfectly all the time. So this man said, said to himself, I'm good. I've lived a good life. I've kept the law. I've followed the directions. I love mom and dad. I've done all these things. Therefore, I am going to heaven. 
And that may describe the way you feel today. You may have grown up in church. Maybe you grew up unchurched. But either way, you say, well, you know, I try to live the golden rule. I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. I actually pay my taxes legitimately. I don't, you know, somebody said that the, uh, the, the biggest works of fiction are tax returns. I don't remember the exact quote, but that's, that, that's basically what I said. And so it could be that you do all these things. And from the outside looking in, you're staying out of trouble, you're living the good life. But even if you do a good job, you don't do it perfectly. You fall short. And if you're trusting in your goodness to get to heaven, you are lost this morning. You're not going to heaven. You're headed to hell, just like this man was. So this man points him to the law. And notice, notice where he turns. He turns to, ver, uh, to Ten Commandments. He doesn't go to some obscure passage. He just starts in verse 20. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, is that the beginning of the Ten Commandments? Does anybody know? The answer is no. The Ten Commandments start with, don't have any other gods before me. He starts on the second table of the law, the, the things that deal with our relationships with people. And he, doesn't, he does not include the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is, thou shalt not covet. What is coveting? It's wanting what somebody else has. It's wanting to keep everything that you have. Also in Matthew 19, 19, Jesus adds something else that Luke doesn't record. He, said, he, he adds the second greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus puts that to this man. He says, you know the commandments, hear all these things, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this man is so deluded, he thought he had done all those things, including loving his neighbor as himself from his youth up. He was pretty self-assured. I've done all this, but yet I still need to come to Christ for an answer. In Matthew 19, 20, <clears throat> records this man asking. He, he goes through this, and the man asks, what am I still lacking? And I, I can just, I can hear the pain in this man's voice. I've done all this. I've kept the law. I've not murdered. I've not stolen. I, I've I treat mom and dad well. When they get sick, I help them out. I, I you know, I'm of, of all the kids. I'm the, I, you know, there sometimes there are kids, multiple kids, and there's usually like the one that does a whole bunch for mom and dad, and then the others are kind of like, hey, good job, you got it. He's the one that's helping mom and dad. I mean, he's doing the stuff. He's like, it's there has to be more. What else am I lacking? I've done all this, I don't have assurance of salvation. I, I've done all this, and I don't believe I'd go to heaven if I died. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. I've tried to live a good life, keep the law. What am I still lacking? So Jesus tells him. Verse 22, one thing you still lack. And here's the, the third thing. It's a challenging requirement. He, this man claims to have kept the law from his youth up, and, and it's almost like Jesus said, okay, now, let's try this again. We'll have a remedial course. You say you kept the law. Let's go back to step one. I'll give you a test. You think you can pass this with flying colors? Question one. So here's what he says to do. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. This man is confident he can pass the test of all ten. 
commandments. And he fails on the first question because Jesus says, give, give everything you have away. Sell it all, give to the poor. But the Bible says this man didn't do that. Why? Because he did not possess his things. His things possessed him. He had riches and wealth and material goods. He had maybe land. He had all sorts of things. And those things had become his idols. He was materially rich and spiritually poor. This man's possessions were, were not satisfying to him. They were not meeting the needs of his soul. They, they, they could not fill the, the God-shaped void in his heart that each of us has. And yet he couldn't give them up. That's how he knew, or we know, they're his idol. They can't satisfy they can't meet the needs of his soul, but he won't let them go. He can't bring himself to give them up. And we think of the pagan in some far-off land that has built a statue and bows down to worship and offers sacrifices and does all this stuff. We think of that person as an idolater, and they are. And idolatry is a terrible sin. But listen, you can be sitting right here in this church this morning and have idols. Not sitting on a shelf at, at, at the house, but you can have all kinds of idols. Things that are in your heart. They've come between you and God. <clears throat> in fact, they've become your God. It's not satisfying your soul, but you can't turn loose of it. And no matter what the position is, no matter what it is that you've put in God's place, you need to give, it, give that up because it is not worth it. It does not have eternal value. And it's the, 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 the height of foolishness to gain the world and lose your own soul. Now, the question always comes up, is this a requirement for all Christians in all places at all times? In other words, if we become a Christian, do we have to become penniless and homeless in order to follow Jesus? And the answer to that is no. You, you see, this is not a requirement that Jesus placed on the disciples. It's not a requirement when the gospel was given in the book of Acts, for instance. The Bible doesn't say, uh, repent of your sins and sell everything. The Bible says, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus. This is a specific case where Jesus knew the man's possessions, knew the man's wealth were keeping him from the kingdom. And so he said, you need to get that stuff out of the way so they don't keep you from the kingdom. The overarching principle, if, if we can draw one from that, is that we need to hold loosely onto our things. Because if we hold onto them too tightly, we can become so entangled by them, they hinder us in our walk with God. Fourth, I want you to see human impossibility. <clears throat> Human impossibility. This man heard what Jesus said. He said, I've kept the law. He says, okay. Well, you need to sell this and then come follow me. Who is good? Who is God? And he says, I can't do that. Why? Commandment number one. Don't have any other gods before me. This man had gods before the one true God. And as he turned and he left, this Jesus watched the man walk away. And, and as he departed, he, he, he turned to those who were surrounding him, and he noted the difficulty with which a rich person will enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He is speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He is, he is talking about something that is humanly impossible. Now, you've probably heard it. If you've been in church for a while, you probably have heard it said that there used to be a wall into the city that had a gate that was not very big and a camel could not go through it. Have you ever heard of this? And he couldn't go through it unless he got on his knees and he knelt and he, he could get through it that way. If he came through it, if he came through the door on his knees. That sounds great. 
That's a powerful, powerful picture. The problem is, it's historically false. There was no gate that was called the eye of a needle. It just didn't exist. And on top of that, that idea destroys what Jesus is saying. Because what he's saying is, it is humanly impossible for a rich man, and I'll add for a poor man or anybody in between, to get to heaven. You can't do it on your own. It is humanly impossible. And, and Jesus is talking about human impossibility. He said how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom. Because they've got to overcome all kinds of entanglements. The people that don't have as much, they've got to overcome all this extra stuff. And so those who are around Jesus said, then who can be saved? Because they had the idea, and maybe some of us still hold on to that idea. We cling to the idea that if somebody is materially blessed, materially wealthy, or, or however you want to phrase it, that they are under the special blessing of God. And if, if that person is not going to get into the kingdom without great difficulty, then what's the chances of the rest of us? If somebody who's extremely blessed is hardly going to get in, what about you and me? And so Jesus tells them plainly, things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Now, it's not that the rich can't get into the kingdom. We see, we'll see that in the next chapter. Zacchaeus was converted. He was a rich man. It's not that it can't happen, but it, there's just difficulties because they have so much stuff that can, it can cause a stranglehold on them and they, they want the stuff instead of Jesus. Finally, I want you to see an encouraging promise. An encouraging promise. Peter sees all this. and he's, Now, I, I don't know his heart, but it seems to me that he's fishing for a compliment. It's like I can just sing, you know, I'm, I'm, Jesus, he, he left, he departed. Because he won't give up everything. Look at us. We've left everything, Jesus. <coughs> now, again, I don't know if that's the way he said it, but that's the way that it seems to me he did. He was looking for an attaboy. He was looking for a pat on the back. And, and Jesus gave the first disciples and those who follow Christ today an encouraging promise that God is going to repay those who follow Him, those who leave everything and follow Him. Both in this life, but also in the life to come. Now this was especially true in the early church. When, when if you follow Christ, you lost everything. Your family turned against you. You're, you, may, you might lose your, your livelihood. I mean, you, you just lost stuff. But even today, if you follow Christ, if you become a Christian, you might become <coughs> excuse me, an outcast in your family. You might become an outcast at work. You might have brothers and sisters who turn their back on you. But you, yet you'll find brothers and sisters, you'll fam, find the family of God all around. And you'll find many people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and many of them will be closer than blood relatives. And not just that, but, but Jesus said also eternal life and the life to come. God will reward them and he'll reward us as well. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? Believe on the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Look at the law, absolutely. And as you do it, realize if you don't keep it 100% all the time, perfectly, you ain't getting in. You say, but I only, I, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Well, God has a cutoff. Perfection and everything else. <coughs> Without fail, 100% obedience. 
The book of James says that if you, if you are guilty of breaking the law at one point, you've broken the whole law. Because the one who said don't murder is the one who also said don't steal. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, if you have a, if you have a, link, if you have a, a chain, you don't have to break every link of that chain for the chain to be broken. You just break one link of it and the chain is broken. And it's like that with the law. You don't have to break all Ten Commandments for the law to be broken. You just have to break one. And if you try to keep the law, if you, if you insist on trying to do good works and all these things, you better be perfect in doing it forever. From the time that you were born to the time that you die. Listen, that's going to result in condemnation because you can't do it. None of us can. That's why the Bible says no person, no flesh will be justified by works of the law. Therefore, trust in Christ. Believe on Him for the forgiveness of sins. And, and when, you, <coughs> when you put your faith in Him, not only do we have our sins forgiven, which is what we always focus on, but the Bible says that, that Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept the law perfectly. And His perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness, then is credited to our account. And if you've never trusted in Christ, do that today. Don't let wealth or popularity or what friends or family may say or anything else keep you from Him. But this is also a good word for us as Christians that, that what we have is a gift from God. And, and we, we shouldn't hold on to those things so tightly that it hinders us in our walk with God. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. <clears throat> And as you stand, as you bow your heads and close your eyes. <coughs> and just in the quiet of this time, I want to encourage you to <coughs> take an honest inventory of your life. Has there ever been a time when you have recognized your sin against God? The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves we're, and we're making God out to be a liar. No, you've sinned. I've sinned. God requires us love Him with all that we have. None of us has never done that. God says... To love our neighbors ourselves. None of us has ever done that perfectly. <coughs> you recognize that. If you still trust in that to get you to heaven, friend, you are condemned today, right now. As the Bible says that the one who has not believed on the Son is condemned already. Stop trusting in your works. Stop trusting in your effort. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Christian, what about you? Are you holding on to things, possessions, wealth, reputation, popularity? Heavenly Father, Thank you for um, thank you for your word which speaks to us today. And God, I ask that if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. Let them realize 
that they cannot do it on their own. Let them trust in you. For that's the only hope that we have. And Lord, for those of us who are Christians, we pray that you'd help us to follow you and to not become so entangled with the gifts that you've given us that we turn a blind eye to the one who's given them. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.